0: Good morning it is just my privilege to be here i've been looking forward to this for for a really long time Uh, as many of you know i've known aaron and corey for a while when we were at the same church in uh in phoenix and corey and i mean aaron and i would meet every couple of weeks for for quite a while and it is such a thrill to see what god is doing here through Trace, because I remember as if it was yesterday, the very first time when we were meeting, and Aaron says, I, I, I just have to share with you this thought that Jesus uh, has placed in my heart. And, it, and it's, it's this concept that I'm calling trace. It's, it's the merging of truth and grace together. And I'm not entirely sure what God's going to do with this, but I have this very strong sense. That God wants to do something big with this concept of Trace and to go from that moment uh, to be able to see what God is, has done is doing and will do here at Trace is just tremendous and at, at the same time he was he was also always saying too that he had this sense that he and Cory would do ministry in the future wasn't sure again what that would look like but that the two of them would be doing ministry together and to see them both working here under God's guidance uh, at Trace is just is just such a thrill and I appreciate so much the opportunity to uh, to share with you. Uh, as Aaron said I have been a stewardship pastor for the last 15 years uh, seven of those years I was at Willow Creek Church and then the last eight years I've been at uh, Central Christian Church in Phoenix uh, and then prior to that I spent 27 years as a finance manager for General Electric but while in GE uh, I was in my mid-twenties when God made it very, very clear. He impressed on me in a very dramatic way that he wanted me to study diligently what the Bible says about money and then to be able to communicate it in a way that could help others realize the importance of, of just understanding what God wants us to know uh, in his scripture about, monies and, about money. And, and even though I've been doing it for over 40 years, uh, my overall passion for this topic has never has never waned, and one of the reasons for that is that that i 've witnessed that when someone truly understands god 's perspective of money never, their lives are never quite the same, and so that 's one of the reasons why I, I just love an opportunity to share some things that, that God has been laying on my heart so let me start off by asking a couple of really important questions and one is Why is money such a hard topic for so many of us to talk about? And then secondly, why do so many people struggle with uh, with money? Have you ever really really thought much about that? Because I've certainly seen that over the 40 years that I've been studying this. But maybe the more important question is what can I specifically do to become financially healthy and to make money a positive factor? in my life because I believe that's what God wants us to see as he teaches us in his word about money. So I've spent a lot of years really thinking through the answer to that question. What I've concluded in very simple terms is that we need to develop a different way to think about money and we need to listen far more to God's word than to the culture's way. And so uh, what I want to spend the rest of our time doing is identifying four specific decisions that we must make for money to become a blessing in our lives and not a burden. And so that first decision is to commit to letting God influence our thinking more than money. In Matthew six twenty-four, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Because this verse is familiar to most of us, it's easy to miss what Jesus is actually trying to tell us here. And and in reality, the King James Version does a better job of actually translating the original language when it says you cannot serve both God and mammon. See, mammon is different from money. Mammon represents... the the powerful force that money has to influence us. So in reality, what God is saying is there are two powerful influences. There's the God of the universe and there's the powerful force of mammon. And both desire to influence our thinking and our actions. But unfortunately, they go in separate directions and you cannot choose both. Jesus is not saying it's hard to follow both. He's saying it is impossible, you must choose. And another factor we can't, feel to, we can't fail to miss is the word serve. You know, Jesus didn't say you will prefer one over the other or you will like one over the other. He intentionally used the word serve. He said you will serve one or the other because a servant follows the desires of the one being served. And in this case, you will do either what God desires or what mammon desires. And that reality makes this an incredibly powerful verse, which leaves us a key question that each one of us must consider very carefully. And that's when we make money decisions, who guides those decisions? Is it God or is it mammon? Are we following what the culture says is normal or God? Because financial health requires that we do it God's way, which is critical because your relationship to money always impacts your relationship to God. The second decision we face is choosing to be managers and not owners of money and possessions. See, God's word is clear. God created everything and he never gave up the title to his creation or his possessions. Psalm 24 one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And then in Psalm 50 beginning in verse 10, God tells us for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine for the world is mine and all that is in it. God makes, makes it crystal clear, he is the owner and we are his managers or his stewards. And that even extends to what we earn. In Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 17, it says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And here's the key, if we believe we are owners, then we have nothing but our own thoughts, our own opinions, and our own abilities to lean on. When we are stewards of God, we benefit from his truth, his wisdom with his possessions. God's wisdom is the foundation of financial health and freedom. So over the years I've discovered that in many churches we've developed, unfortunately, an incorrect understanding of the word stewardship when I was growing up in my church, Stewardship Sunday was the day our minister used to make us feel guilty for not giving more to the church. And I grew up thinking stewardship was just a churchy word for giving. And certainly giving is a part of stewardship, but true stewardship is simply the act of living as a biblical steward. What's a steward? In biblical times, a steward was a position Of great responsibility assigned only to highly trusted individuals of high integrity. A modern-day example of that is a bank president who has been entrusted with the possession of depositors to manage wisely. He knows he doesn't own the money in the bank. He is a steward of other people's money. What do you think would happen if he started to act as an owner and secretly started transferring the money in the bank to his personal account. When discovered, he would be fired and face jail time. Because when a steward starts to act like an owner, he's in trouble with the true owner. God assigns to us the role of steward and he retains the right as owner. We see this relationship clearly in what we refer to as the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You'll remember that the master went away on a journey and he entrusted different amounts of money to his different servants or to his stewards and he expected them to manage it wisely and when he returned he called each one in individually to find out what they did with his money the one who'd been entrusted with ten talents he earned ten more the one given five earned five more and in both cases the master commended them equally for being good stewards. And perhaps more significantly, and this is key, he invited them to enter into the master's happiness. But the servant given one talent, he went and hid the money and returned it back to the master, which greatly displeased him because the servant had ignored his stewardship responsibility. The theme of the parable is that those who were good stewards not only got the opportunity to steward more, but brought happiness to the master. But the one who failed to steward the master's money lost the opportunity to be a steward. In Luke 19, 26, Jesus said, and to those who use well what they are given will be given more. Put another way, when you have proven yourself to be a good steward, you will be given more to steward. Our decision to be a steward or an owner, it really matters. Because when we have an owner's attitude, we make decisions based on what we want. When we have a steward's attitude, we make decisions based on what God wants. When we truly understand we are stewards, it completely changes our perspective on giving and generosity. We realize the question is not how much should we give of our money, but how much should we keep of God's? In fact, someone once said, it's a whole lot easier and certainly a lot more fun giving away somebody else's money. And here's the reality we cannot miss. When we are stewards and not owners, we become more generous people, we manage money differently, we become more content, joyful, and less burdened, and we see God in a different light. And this is my desire and my prayer for each and every one of us, because stewardship really matters. The third decision is recognize the need to ask very different questions about money. It's not what will you do with your money, but what relationship will you choose to have with God's money? To a lot of people, that's a pretty radical concept. But if you read the scriptures carefully, you will notice that Jesus spends very little time talking about how much we should give to the temple or how much we should save for the future or how much we should spend on our lifestyle and he never once mentioned a budget. Although these are all really good things, Jesus is primarily concerned about the relationship that we choose to have with money. Let's quickly look at a couple of examples. In Luke 18, Beginning in verse 18, we observe Jesus interacting with the man we often refer to as the rich young ruler. So a certain man asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? At this point, Jesus engages him in a discussion about the commandments of God, at which point the young man says, I've kept them since I was a young boy. Then Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me when he heard this he became very sad because he was very wealthy see the rich young ruler he asked the right question of the right person at the right time and Jesus willingly interacted with him but Jesus knew that the relationship the young man had to his wealth was an obstacle to his relationship to Jesus and when Jesus asked him to choose between his relationship to money and his relationship to the Son of God, he chose money. And he walked away sad because he knew he could not have both. Now, a quick note is very important. Jesus is not asking each one of us to give away everything. He was zeroing in on the specific thing that was keeping that young man from becoming a follower of Jesus. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 3, we read about a woman we know to be Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, as she interacted with Jesus. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head, and some of those present, which we know to be the disciples, were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. It's easy to miss the fact that in modern terms, think about it, Mary had poured roughly $50,000 worth of precious oil on Jesus. The disciples watched, and were horrified at the waste of money. But they weren't asking the right question. They wanted to know, what are you going to do with the money? Jesus wanted to know, how is your wealth impacting your relationship to me? Mary used her wealth as a tangible expression that her relationship to Jesus was far more important than her relationship to her expensive perfume. You know, I, I do wonder like the disciples, are we asking the wrong questions ourselves about money and wealth? A consistent theme of God's word is our relationship to money will either draw us closer to God or take us farther away. The way we relate to money is never spiritually neutral. So the large banner that I would hang over our message this morning is that God cares more about the impact money has on relationships than on bank accounts, buildings, and budgets. As a quick example, in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 23, we read, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is saying, first go and get the relationship right, then give your gift. Because relationship is the priority. And that is why in God's economy, money is never just a financial issue. The fourth decision is we must resist the powerful ability of wealth to deceive. Let me read for you a passage of scripture that has had a very significant impact on my life personally. And that is the very familiar parable of the four soils and the four seeds that we read in mark four you'll remember jesus is explaining the meaning of the four seeds to his disciples right now i just want to focus our attention on the third and fourth seeds that jesus explains beginning in verse 18 still others like the seed sown among thorns hear the word but the worries of this life the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop some 30, some 60, some 100 times more than was sown. See, almost hiding in plain sight. And the explanation of the third seed is something so significant that I'm ashamed it took me many years to fully realize it. Jesus specifically mentions three things related to the third seed. The worries of his life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. And two of the three things specifically talk about the damaging relationship to money. The way money deceives, and the desire for more and more stuff. But here's the most important part of Jesus' message. He goes on to explain that when these three things get a foothold in our lives, the word becomes unfruitful. There is a direct connection between how we choose to relate to money and the fruitfulness of God's word in our lives. See how significant this is? But there's good news. See, the fourth seed represents people who hear the word and accept it or or they internalize it, they own it and allow it to not only influence their life, but to protect them from the deceitfulness of wealth and the constant desire for more things. And when that happens, they become not just fruitful, they become wildly fruitful. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times more than was sown. Jesus is teaching us that our financial health depends on seeing money as a spiritual issue and not just a financial one. In a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk, Annie Dillard writes about the ill-fated Franklin Expedition of 1845. Two ships set out from England to find a northwest passage near the North Pole. They left incredibly unprepared with only a 12-day supply of coal while stocking the ships with fine china, expensive gold goblets, and pure silverware. Well, quite predictably, the ships met with disaster as the hulls became stuck in the ice, forcing the crew to abandon ship. After several months, Lord Franklin died, and the remaining crew decided to split up in teams of two and head out in different directions to seek help. Sadly, though, none of them survived. When a team of rescuers came later to ascertain what what actually happened, they were heartbroken. In one case, they found two officers that had traveled 65 miles in the freezing temperatures, pulling a sled they had crafted from one of the lifeboats. The pair was found frozen to death, only five short miles away from a base camp where they would have been saved. In fact, the rescuers concluded that had they left the heavy sled behind, they easily would have made it to safety. You know what they found in the sled? The fine china, the silverware, and a huge stash of gold coins. In the face of fighting for their very lives, they couldn't leave the stuff behind. And I believe this is a perfect example of one of the ways in which money deceives. See, God wants to be our guide in the area of money. And when we follow his wisdom, we witness lives changed and kingdom impact before I close, let me ask you another question. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to become instantly wealthy? If you were to have that experience, what do you think you would do with the money? And also, how would that change you? Very few people have had that experience, but interestingly enough, it happened to my wife Debbie and I. It was 1979. We had been married for four years and our first child was just a baby and I wanted to get started on a college fund for our new son and so I asked around about various investments to purchase to get us started. Based on the advice I got I settled on an investment in precious metals, specifically silver. A friend had suggested purchasing what was called a silver futures contract that would allow us to control a large number of ounces of silver with a small initial investment that would grow until some maturity date when the silver would be sold. So I invested our savings of $5,000 in a silver contract in July with maturity set for the second week of January, six months later. To make a long story short, within a few weeks of our investment, the silver market went crazy. Over the course of a few short months, the price of silver went from $7 an ounce to more than $50 an ounce. And with each passing week during our six-month contract, silver rose and our profit skyrocketed. Our $5,000 investment soon became 15000 then 25000 then 50000 and from there it only accelerated. And by the time we approached the end of our contract, we had amassed over $100,000 in six months. Now to put that in perspective, in 1979, that represented five times my annual salary at GE. So in today's terms, that would be roughly a quarter of a million dollars, and we were not yet 30 years old. We got to experience instant wealth. And I distinctly remember that Debbie and I had committed to give away a significant portion of our profit to God's work. And I can honestly say our instant riches did not trigger any real greed in either one of us. We felt good about our decision to give generously from our newfound wealth. The interesting part is the rest of the story. A few weeks before our contract was to expire and our huge check would be coming, we were notified by federal government officials that the company holding our investment had just declared bankruptcy. We would not be receiving our $100,000. In fact, we wouldn't even be getting back our initial $5,000 investment. We had experienced instant wealth and sudden loss all in a six-month period. In analyzing what happened, we reached the conclusion that God had actually protected us by taking away our newfound wealth, not because it generated greed in us, but to avoid a far more dangerous issue. See, our money had caused us to subtly assume that our wealth offered us a measure of protection and safety from life's ups and downs. And feeling rich caused us to lean on something other than God. And in his wisdom, he protected us because our attitude of financial independence was hurting our relationship to him. And he cared more about our relationship to him than he did about our giving, our generosity, or our ability to fund kingdom ministry. And by the way, just as a side note, five months after that, I was transferred to Puerto Rico and we found a house we liked and we put in an offer. Later we were told that the owner of the house had been presented the very same day with a second offer. Turns out he accepted our offer instead of the other offer even though the other offer was exactly $5,000 more than our offer. We concluded that once we learned our lesson, we feel God gave us our $5,000 back. So as we wrap up this morning, I'd like to highlight two critical questions each of us must answer in our own lives regarding money and possessions. The first is, what relationship will you choose to have with money and possessions? And do you understand the significant ramifications of your choice? It's a great time for each one of us to do a self-assessment in our own lives and ask, are we more influenced in our money decisions by the culture or by God's word? See, the Bible has over 2000 verses that talk about money and possessions more than any other single topic except love. And I believe that's because God knew we needed to clearly understand the impact that money has in our lives. Jesus wants us to enjoy a closer walk with him, a more generous life, healthy relationships, and spiritual fruitfulness. And he is teaching us in very clear terms that our ability to enjoy these is significantly influenced by the relationship that we choose to have with money. And it all starts with our decision to live as a steward and not as an owner. So we close with a challenge for each one of us. To experience the spiritual fruitfulness and financial health that results from choosing to be God's stewards of his resources managed under his guidance. And when you do, your life will never be the same. Because stewardship really matters. So if you would, join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you have given us so much guidance in your word about money and possessions and have encouraged us to truly understand what it means to be a steward of yours. And so I pray for your guidance as we go out into the world and into our daily lives to help us each day to focus on our role as steward of what you have provided, so that we ultimately, as stewards, can have the greatest impact on the lives of others, and the greatest impact in moving your kingdom forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.